Hello and welcome to the Human Works podcast and this is your host Anish Lalchandani. The future of work is uniquely human. On this show I take you on a journey to explore different perspectives to learn grow and thrive. He's LinkedIn's top voices to follow. Forbes calls him India's most interesting globalist. Author of various books and his latest book Dreamers and Unicorns is on the bestseller list. Today I'm delighted to welcome Abhijit Badri to Human Works podcast. Welcome Abhijit. Thank you so much Anish for having me. So lovely to be here with you. Wonderful. To start the conversation, would you share with our listeners what was your career journey like and what is the work you do now? Let me start with where I ended up and then we sort of look at uh, some of the things that have happened. I recently completed 5 years of being my own sort of employer uh, and employee together, you know, so we started a small firm about 5 years back and uh, that really focuses on leadership, talent and culture. We also do a certain amount of advisory in terms of brand evangelism on social media so that's another part of the work that we do and the roots of this uh, actually go back to the work that I did while I was at Wipro for 7 years as the chief learning officer I worked with them you know so I sort of learned about social media and sort of brought in some of those ideas there and a lot of what I did appeared first in this book called the digital tsunami and now more recently all the consulting experience that i've had shows its ideas they show up in this book called dreamers and unicorns prior to that i worked with uh, microsoft with pepsico with uh, colgate in us and prior to that in asia pacific mumbai for a short while before that i was in advertising you know i worked with mudra and uh, prior to that with tata steel so really rolling stone worked across multiple sectors different kinds of roles but my passion was always uh, to get into this whole area of learning and trying to understand at multiple levels what makes organizations grow better and what makes an individual become more successful what makes teams become more successful i think this is the question so success in different shapes and forms is always very intriguing so that's what i really try to do for a living wonderful i would say you know what an impressive career means i'm you are a role model to so many people so what an impressive career definitely oh gosh i mean that's <laughs> you know <laughs> if you tell any of your employees how many jobs you know i've changed nobody is going to employ you but uh, i was lucky to get away with it but yeah i kind of thought that i wanted to learn about uh, HR as it applied in multiple sectors so that was mm-hmm. really the reason why i wanted to look at different kinds of sectors whether it was advertising and in some ways there's been a byproduct which has been very beneficial so for example being in advertising also gave me an idea to understand media a little better and today i think that's a huge area that i leverage whether it's in terms of the drawings that i do in yeah. terms of the podcasts or the all the writing etc that i do I think my understanding of um, and curiosity in how the media was evolving in India and also now globally you know, in a connected world it's all the same so I think that was another interesting transition a parallel track in my career so I did a bunch of things in that I think it's always good to experiment and learn and that's what I'm hearing that that's what you've been doing and enjoying it yeah so that that's great yeah yeah I did a number of things where there was absolutely no reason to try out something but uh, whether it was doing a lot of work with the radio at one point of time i read the news i did theater on radio and 
They ran when I was in US. I ran a, a small radio show called Movie Magic, where I talked about Bollywood and music of the 70s and 80s. I did that, which is called the Golden Period of Indian Cinema. I did a lot of that, and then eventually, when podcast as a medium appeared, it seemed like a natural progression, and it allowed me to. Now, technology allows you to do this in your own office, so it's just. Tremendous what you can do today. That's true. That's true. We will definitely come to the creativity question and your endeavors there. But I want to talk about your book, Dreamers and Unicorn. And you know, what has been the inspiration for you to write this? Uh, Anish, I think uh, when I, in the last five years, the work that I've done spans across many large corporations from mm-hmm. the Fortune 10 kind of corporations all the way to tiny startup, 10 people, 15 people startups. So when you have looked at that, I was actually exploring this whole question in parallel, what makes an organization successful or grow? As I said, that I'm obsessed with that. that Why is it that when everybody starts off from the same start line, why do people end up in different spots? You know, what what is it that drives them? I also discovered that when it comes to organizations, there used to be a point of time when all these the tangible factors like the land, labor, the number of employees, all this used to add value. But now one of the things that has happened is the value creation has shifted to the softer areas, which is uh, all the intangible things like brand, uh, your supply chain, your leadership bench, talent strategy, um, culture. All these are the ways in which organizations add value. And according to some of the estimates that McKinsey and some of the other writers like Colin Myers have done, it's almost anywhere between 80 and 90% of the firm's value comes from this. So when you look at that, it sort of really merits this whole question that what else has changed? And so I understood the five shifts, which I talk about, you know, boundarylessness, uh, you know, understanding emotions, handling polarities, and then, of course, things like the perpetual beta, besides, of course, the rise of intangibles, which I talked about. So these were some of the things that uh, got me to understand that um, work, worker, and workplaces, all three of them are impacted by these five shifts. So that's what was the trigger behind this book. Wonderful. And I think it's also a right time to, you know, bring this book out where there's so much of change going on. Yeah. So, so that's also a way in terms of how COVID has impacted people's lives and people are thinking beyond just the work. Yeah. And you write, I think, in the softer aspects around talent, leadership, and culture, become far more a center stage for many people to really think through as a foundation rather than a good to have kind of a thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, uh, you know, if you take any one of the shifts, I mean, I spoke very briefly about the intangibles, but if you look at uh, this whole debate around the hybrid workplace and the confusion, I mean, once you understand the basic principle is polarities will exist. So you will have people who want to go back to the office. There'll be people who don't want to go back to the office and everything in between. They want to go back to the office on some days. They want to Mm -hmm. uh, get some of the teams in there. So you're actually looking at a time when these five forces become a really, really powerful way in which you can make sense of all the chaos that is happening. Because once you begin to have a framework, it doesn't seem all that chaotic. You really begin to understand the pattern you're aware it is going. So that was really what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right. I think the nature of work is shifting quite a lot. A lot of it is also being driven by the digital transformation or the acceleration, which is happening at that front in many ways. Yeah. So it's in a way forced a lot of people to rethink the way they work and how they really going to lead in this era. 
So what would be your point of view in terms of managing leaders leading in this era where things are so different and they are not used to some of the ways of new ways of working, I would say. So in my book, Dreamers and Unicorns, I talk about the fact that uh, some of the ways with which we have developed leadership programs, you know, when we sort of train people for leadership, we are training them to do a number of things, which uh, today in this kind of a world where look at it, that we really had no time to respond because suddenly one fine day you are given maybe 48 hours or 72 hours notice to say everything moves indoors. I mean, so it's volatile. It's uncertain because even today, we don't know when things will go back to quote-unquote uh, normal. And if you think of the five principles, the last one is perpetual beta. It probably never will go back to that pre-COVID time. So in my book, I talk about that as BC. It is before COVID. And uh, the complexity of it all, that it is not just one single variable, because if you think about what happens to, if you create any norm, you discover that some of the groups get adversely impacted. If you say you have to work from home, the people who are really living in places where there isn't that much of uh, connectivity or space or bandwidth or the devices that they are using are shared by a number of people in the family. For multiple things, inequities get exposed a lot. So there's complexity. You know, It's not just a very simple thing. Like, for example, if you say we've got a vaccination, so let's just give it to people. It's about trust. So when you look at it, I mean, it's these are situations where dealing with ambiguity means that there are no playbooks. So the leaders actually have to be able to listen, make choices, take the people along, make course corrections, again, go back to listening. So I think the role of the leader has changed quite drastically because the organization, which in some senses used to be like an aquarium that you could, once you stepped into the organization, you left your home behind, you left uh, the world outside, and you said that, okay, this is where how we work. And I think you do find that that's one big shift that, you know, the organization or the aquarium is now part of the ocean. So mm-hmm. there are external issues that people are earlier, they never bothered. They said that, you know, whatever is happening in the world outside is not our concern. We are not concerned about it. I think the leaders are not going to be able to do it. I think that one of my beliefs is the government is going to become a very powerful stakeholder that the leaders have to learn to manage. They have not had to do that again. And you are already beginning to see examples of that happening in different continents and different countries. And so in a connected world, it's only a question of time before it comes to exactly where you are. So the role of the leader has changed quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think you talked about managing ambiguity, listening, being agile in a way to keep kind of looking at things, changing as as new information or trend comes in. Plus things like working with uh, government and external parties, that's possibly new and in a very different context now altogether. Yeah, uh, and and I think even looking at understanding media, we'll just take a very simple example that think about uh, the way you communicate uh, in your personal life. What is the vehicle that you use? I mean, you do a lot of, let's say, WhatsApp, or you do video and you do some calls and all that. You don't do any email at all. I mean, you do check your email for the odd stuff here and there, but your predominant communication that you, you know, unless it's official, like you want to communicate with your bank, you probably do email. But even the bank now sends you stuff on WhatsApp. So when you look at it, I mean, I think the way that we communicate has changed a lot. And I think the leaders today need to really start thinking about building their uh, content strategy for the leaders. They must understand that they really own the brand. So, And when you have a powerful brand, it actually results in basic money being saved. Think about the fact that if you and really one of the Fortune 10 companies offers the same candidate a job, 
where do you think the person is going to go? And if you have to beat that expectation, you have to pay that much more. And that's the premium that you pay for not having a strong brand. And for example, a strong leadership brand actually helps you attract business and attract great talent. A great talent brand, which is owned by the employees, actually attracts talent as well because you begin to see what does it feel like to work there. So I think you cannot get away by saying, that oh, that's left to the PR firm, they'll figure out something. I think it's a very different world. And I suppose one of the dangers that leaders have to guard against is that they shouldn't be running the post-COVID workplace with the same rules and mindset that they have used when they've run the previous, the before COVID world of work. Yeah, you're right. I think it's a different mindset which is required to manage the new normal and the new complexities which are there. Talking about, you know, the future of work, I think we're talking a lot around the future and, you know, we, we talk about the gig economy. And I think there's been so much of talk going on in terms of how gig economy is picking up. So what's your view in terms of, is it just a seasonal thing or is it a longer term trend in terms of how the economy would pick up? So first of all, I think when you take the of those five principles and you sort of look at very quickly, you look at the fact that boundarylessness, I mean, talent is now boundaryless. I can be sitting in any place and I do. I mean, I do work for many other countries now when there are travel restrictions, nothing has stopped. I just uh, taught a course in the University of Pennsylvania yesterday. So while I'm right here. So I think talent is becoming boundaryless. I mean, they are not constrained. If you have a mobile phone and you have great connectivity, uh, the world is your office and the world is your opportunity and marketplace. So that's one. If you look at the polarities, I mean, I don't think you are going to move to a situation where the organizations will work only with uh, freelancers or gig workers. But I think you will see a time when you'll see a mix of full-time employees, part-timers, contractors, freelancers, gig workers, all of that. You'll see that. I also think that uh, when you look at the gig workers world, intangibles like the personal brand is going to become very important. Because when you're a a gig worker, your reputation matters more than anything else. Before people even get to know whether you have the skills, it's your reputation, word of mouth, you know, that sort of works. So perpetual beta, if you think about it, it's also going to evolve. You know, the percentages of gig workers, freelancers is going to change. So just in terms of, you know, you notice I'm using two different terms, freelancers and gig workers. Mm -hmm. The differentiation is primarily that uh, in a gig worker, the service, the individual who's providing the service is irrelevant. The service is more important. So, for example, when you want a shared taxi, you know, you uh, don't really care who's the cab driver. If one person cancels and another person comes in, you're not impacted by that as long as you get the service. Whereas with a freelancer, let's say a doctor is a freelancer, an actor is a freelancer, someone like me, I'm a freelancer. I don't list my services on a platform, but I get, so people reach out to me directly and they sort of decide to work with me. So here the individual becomes more important than the platform because there is no platform. You go to a particular, if you want to go to a pediatrist, pediatric surgeon, then you're not going to go to an ophthalmologist or a general practitioner. You know, you will go to that person. So the work is very, very specific to the individual. That's basically the difference. And um, it's, it's an important difference because, again, there is a third category that I sometimes use, which is the gig artist, which is for creative works. When you are a creator, there's just a slightly different uh, flavor, but maybe another time we'll talk about the gig artist as a third category. But yeah, this is what it is predominantly. 
Yeah, no, I think it's interesting and fascinating how the landscape is changing. And in a way, if you look at it, it's different talent pools, which are available also for organizations to play into and for individuals to actually be work on their own terms or work in different areas. Yeah, so that also kind of opens up a number of doors for people and especially a sector which is like, I would say, untapped, like say people who have been out of work, people who have taken breaks, they can possibly also come into the workforce through these channels as it, it's picking up now. Completely. And if you look at, I wrote uh, on my LinkedIn post, I wrote uh, this thing, which, uh, you know, so many people commented on where taking a career break at one point of time was uh, considered really like uh, it was the end of your career for all practical purposes. I've talked about uh, so many individuals who've gone back to the workforce after taking a break of anywhere from two or three years, all the way to 18 years and taken a break. And somebody who's had a degree in a completely different field, like uh, accounting, comes back and does uh, technical uh, recruiting and then picks up technical skills, etc., all of that. So I think your career journey is really driven by the kind of skills that you're able to pick up and your ability to communicate that value uh, through the work that you do, your portfolio. If you're a creative person, you show your work on various sites, whether it's Pinterest, or if you're a, a coder, show it on GitHub, where you, if you uh, someone like me, you show your skills on LinkedIn in terms of the kind of ideas that you have. So there are, I think the uh, freelance economy or the creator economy, there is a lot of overlap in that. Mm -hmm. You actually sort of have to do both to be able to sort of operate in the creator economy, uh, which is where life is so very exciting because you, you're getting paid to be creative in some sense. Yeah, no, that, that's true. I think talking about skills and careers, and if we look at any research around uh, employee value proposition, career development and opportunities usually top the list. There's a research from Mercer, there's a lot of internal research within organizations that becomes like a big thing. That is what employees are asking for. And in many ways, organizations recognize that and they say, oh, this is a big thing we should focus on. Do you think organizations doing enough to really reskill and really develop the employees and the workforce at, at a broad level? The answer is no. And I'll let me explain this you know, point of view. I think what happens is we, we still have this um, ROI-based approach towards skill development. You know, you have to understand that today the organizations are not sort of looking at lifetime employment. You know, when you look at lifetime employment, it, it is fair to say that this is the job that I need you to do and I'm going to upskill you and this is the only thing that I'm going to pay for. Anything else that you do is your problem. But now when you are looking at a place where business models are changing quickly, therefore to sort of do this kind of upskilling in bits and pieces is extremely stressful. So whereas if you look at, you know, investing in an ongoing skill development for people, some of which is work specific, this is what I'm learning, some of which is personal interest specific. I want to explore something uh, today and uh, people are driven to pick up the skills now, even if it is something which the organization today does not have the need for, but when you pick up the skills on your own, you're actually developing your own ability to learn unsupervised. And that's a very powerful skill that the organizations really just don't get, that they kind of say that, okay, this is not, I want to learn a language which the organization doesn't use. But tomorrow technology will change and tomorrow you might be getting exactly that kind of a coding platform. 
So then in which case you already have someone trained and who could potentially train other people. So I think this ability to look at upskilling needs to be looked at from a very different lens and rather than, you know, I sent you for this, what is the ROI? It's such an archaic 50s concept. And it's quite surprising that many businesses still take great pride in saying we want to measure everything that we do. It's just an obsolete mindset. You have to stop measuring everything because the value is created by intangibles. And most people have no clue how to measure intangibles. So what are you measuring any which way? So if you sort of are going to measure, let's say, psychological safety uh, of your team, what is the measure for that? How are you going to measure it? And so I think the things that are really important now in this new world of work are things for which a lot of those traditional measures don't hold good. So instead of waiting to figure out what are those measures by which I will now figure out whether it's something to be done, I think you have to trust the employees more, which is where this whole ROI mindset comes in. You measure efficiency. Efficiency comes out of a mindset of lack of trust. I don't know what you're working on. If I leave you unsupervised, you are certainly going to sit and watch Netflix on company time. This mindset means that I'm going to measure your keystrokes, I'm going to put surveillance software, all this kind of thing. You go down that path. But if you really think that the individual is as interested in making the company successful because that's where your interests are aligned, then in which case the person is not going to be doing that. They are going to be motivated to create stuff which is of value. So I think a lot of ways in which when people respond, it depends on their assumptions about human beings. It's their assumption about talent. And uh, they also, when they say that here is how we look at people as unique in terms of the combination of skills that they bring to the table, they're unique. But if you think that human beings are substitutable in that geek platform kind of a model, then you don't really care about whether it's person A versus person B. So I think a lot of people run their organizations, so they're working with people who are knowledge workers and relationship workers. They're actually working exactly the way that they do with shared cap service or food delivery service that you don't really even look at the individual who's coming in. And that's just, you know, not how the knowledge economy is going to work. True. I think really, really glad to hear a refreshing point of view on this topic, I would say. Yeah, because people just shy away from this discussion to say, oh, we are doing everything. But you're right. I think there's a, there's a different aspect for organizations to work towards. And there's possibly might be an overlap with what an individual wants, may not be an overlap in terms of their interest of areas of development which an individual wants. Yeah. And that, I think, leads us to an interesting question. So who is responsible for development? Whoever is responsible for their career. And that's pretty straightforward. Uh, The individual at the end of the day, I mean, the organization and the individual are in a contract. You know, as long as they are creating value for each other, they will stay together. When they don't create value for each other, whichever, if the employer is not creating value, employees uh, change jobs. When the employee is not creating value, you uh, get rid of the employee. So I think when you look at that, I mean, the one who owns your career is you. So therefore, any skill development needs to be something that people should be doing for themselves. And I therefore sometimes think that the way to encourage that mindset and really walk the talk would be to have the employees pay for their their own skills development. Then it sort of takes care of this whole dichotomy that it will drive both. It will drive alignment with, if I think my career future is in this organization, I'm going to do things which this organization is going to need. If I think my career future is going to be elsewhere and I'm going to do something else, I will spend my time and energy and money uh, building skills which I'm going to need in future. 
So either which case, I think it's a decision which will be taken care of if you let the employees pay for their own skill development. Interesting, interesting. And linked to that, when you're talking about managers and leaders, and in the context of development, how do you see the role of managers versus coaches or managers and coaches in a way? Well, I think um, organizations do invest in coaching for some of the high potential leaders. So, you know, it's, it, coaching today is looked at as a privilege. Now, you have to understand that the world is changing so rapidly that most people do need coaching. And there are many transition points. So the way I look at it, I mean, I work with people who are moving from, let's say, being a student, or even though they may have had a little bit of work experience a couple of years in the past. But as they're finishing their MBA, typically, and the people who I work with are those who are planning to get into the world of work, and they sort of look at this transition coaching, that what should I be looking at differently, which is, I think, a really smart thing to do. And then when you become a people manager, then there is certainly a time you must, must, must have transition coaching because it's probably one of the most significant shifts that you're looking at. When you become a manager's manager, then there is another opportunity for transition coaching because you're really trying to figure out how do I consolidate all this information because you are now twice removed from the person who's working on this. And then how do you sort of stay connected with the employees? How do you stay connected with the projects? How do you sort of track the dashboards? So it's a different skill. It's worth investing in that. And then, of course, as you become a business leader, there is another opportunity for coaching. The transition is that you now you are trying to sort of look at many more variables on the dashboard and how do you impact some of them. It's not just the business dashboard that you are looking at. You're also responsible for many of the people metrics. So when you think about that, I mean, these are the kind of things that you are looking to own. And so it makes sense. Finally, I think when you are the head of the business, a lot of your world is outside. I mean, in the sense that you are responsible for managing the stakeholders outside of the organization. And if you built a strong team, hopefully they are doing a good job of you know managing the stakeholders inside the organization. So when you think about it, that's really another time when a number of leaders, you know, when we work with them, those are some of the issues they grapple with. Finally, ironically, when people are looking to stop working and in one particular field and do something else. They are trying to sort of really look at taking a completely different career trajectory. And so many people do it today, which is another time when it helps to have a career coach who can sort things out. I mean, so I was uh, chatting with uh, an individual who earlier was part of my team, now works for somebody else. And she was saying that, you know, I worked for about 11 years now, you know, and I just feel I'm completely burnt out. I have been working in a startup and I don't want to be doing this anymore. I'm contemplating whether I should take a break, start a family, or is that saying that I'm off the ladder career track for forever? And then answering the questions as I've been saying that maybe I can do something on my own. But then I think that, will I be able to make it on my own? And then I kind of think that, no, maybe I should do this. And so, you know, this confusion and the choices and all that, I mean, this is a great time for somebody to have that kind of a conversation with a career transition coach. So it is something that the managers should be able to do. But there's always, you know, the difference between first aid and uh, going to an actual doctor. So I would say that there is place for both. True, I think that's true. I think it's the way models are also changing. Organizations are looking at this person is your team leader or line manager, and this person is your people coach. And the third dimension can be a totally external coaching aspect, as you shared as well, in terms of that people are in different dilemmas or decision points and they need a perspective. 
that's mm. where actually coaching can also help quite a lot and i'm kind of when i look at within asia i see that's quite developing fast now compared to what it was i think definitely in the us europe it's been quite predominant i would say people have number of different niches around coaching uh, but it's good also to see how within asia i think that's also developing quite a lot now i totally agree and and i think you know you just have to look at some of any of the performing arts i mean you have all the sports people have coaches but all business leaders don't isn't that uh, some kind of a irony so i think those are some of the things that lead us to think musicians work with their guru throughout their life so even the best of the people they actually continue to learn from each other the people who have reached the pinnacle of their career they learn from each other from the peer group so i think there are multiple models that one can sort of cite yeah yeah and you know talking about decision points career transitions what's your take on what's driving the great resignation as they call it i think there are multiple reasons but some of which is i think as the business models change the ways of working so again we go back to the work worker workplace scenario there's one time when all of them are changing together work has changed the workplace has disappeared it is but obvious that workforce is also going to change as a byproduct of that because any one of these three changes the other two will change having said that i think when you look at uh, the the great resignation a lot of it has to do with the fact that people in the last 18 months a lot of them have uh, gone through multiple scenarios some have experienced losses they've lost loved ones some of them have experienced financial hardship so they have uh, been laid off from their jobs and the various kinds of scenarios which have been there and uh, they have time to sit back and think and say well life is extremely transient what do i want to do with it so sometimes uh, this is really just as much as sometimes we think that a digital transformation of businesses has been accelerated by 10 years during these last 18 months i think it's also fair to say that um, career transitions have been fast forwarded by 10 years for most people you know things that they would have thought about or worried about when they were 40 or 50 they've done it much earlier so i think you are beginning to see some of that the other pieces um, somewhat market driven that if you look at it i mean in many markets this has thrown open the opportunity to correct wages wage correction earlier used to be a much more slower process depends on the inflation rate depends on the government norms etc suddenly you find when talent becomes boundaryless people are sort of really exploring different options as are employers uh, the other day one of my client tells me that uh, when they look at the cost of hiring from a certain kind of a country they're saying that you know i just found that it's much cheaper for me to post the same job on an upwork kind of a site and get it done because you know the cost of doing it in my home country is as high as getting it done globally in which case i might as well throw it open to global talent so i think the reasons are multiple it's not one single uh, reason but i think it's a lot of these forces coming together true true yeah i think it's number of things going at the same time and also i think it's also opened up choices for a lot of people has for organizations i would say switching gears a little bit and i know you're passionate about this topic around education so what's the fundamental change required in the education system to catch up with the evolving future of work i'll i'll sort of i use the same framework of boundarylessness mm-hmm. i mean if you sort of look at it i think education today is uh, no longer available only just in an educational institution so it is available from multiple sources so the sources have become uh, boundaryless many students have not stepped into a college and have got their degrees so that's one the employers are saying and there are multiple examples whether it's amazon or it's google they're saying that if you do this particular course for 4 months 
we consider you uh, the equivalent of an undergrad and we pay you X amount of money, and which is very attractive. So there are these polarities which are there. There are the intangible things like earlier there was a point of time when uh, education was a, a signaling device that I have got my degree from college A and you've got it from college B, which is a far more fancier, more desirable institution. So then your degree has greater market value. I mean, a number of those things have been challenged. So what you will see is Education, if it is about brands, it's only the really top brands. You know, think about the equivalent of where we say that the only people who grew rich during the pandemic were the people who were already filthy rich. You know, so I think the people with strong brands are the ones which are going to become even stronger brands. But for a lot of people in the middle, that's going to just sort of get decimated. So I think, so you will see a number of things which are shifting, you know, and as I said, the fifth one is obviously the most powerful one, which is a perpetual beta. It is always going to evolve. So you will see polarities. You will see some people getting in for college. Some will get their degrees entirely outside. Some will do a combination of this. Uh, some, you, you will see a number of the intangible factor. You will see the rise of star professors, you know, running, going directly to the learners. And there are many examples of this, where the star professor offers a course and, and people are willing to pay a bizarre amounts of money to attend uh, every lecture from this person rather than to spend that money going to a college. So there are many such models which have emerged. And I think it will see, just as the world of work is uh, breaking up again, the same model work uh, is changing. So the workers are also changing, you know, so whether it's the student or the professor, both are changing. And the workplace, you know, whether there's the institution, that will also change. So I think you are seeing the same classic situation in these in the education sector as well. Yeah, and no, I think it is it is quite evolving and refreshing in many ways as well, even in the education sector and, you know, how people are learning different ways. You're right, it's not only the degree. It can be different ways how people learn. And we were talking about, you know, your the, the work, what you do, and, you know, the, the post you put in on LinkedIn. I would say I'm really impressed when I look at that because they're so creative and visual. Uh, LinkedIn is a lot about, mostly I would say, is text and articles and great insights that's there. But you bring in a different perspective in terms of bringing in creativity into your work and the way you kind of use your skills, plus also, you know, portray those thoughts. That, that's quite impressive. And someone said, you know, creativity is intelligence having fun. So this is my last question, but what does creativity mean to you? I think creativity is the ability to keep yourself entertained, you know, and whichever level you are able to achieve that in is the level where your creativity begins and ends. So in that sense, it is uh, if you find people who are very comfortable with routine work, they actually have no need to do things of great variety. In my case, I kind of get very easily bored by doing the same thing. So I always like to sort of talk about even if the topic is the same, I'd like to take a fresh take on it and do an illustration as a way that it helps me to think. Yeah. So when I think like that, uh, the article or the post actually emerges as a byproduct of the that little sketch that I do. And sometimes I sketch with a certain very loose idea in mind and then the sketch itself evolves. And I've tried many kinds of formats from simple cartoons. I've done portraits for illustrating something. Sometimes I do proper painting and I put text on it, even though a lot of people think it's blasphemy to ruin a painting and put text on it and do that. But I mean... Since it's my own work, I you know I, I I'm not answerable to somebody and say you took my painting and completely destroyed it. So I think it's just uh, I just enjoy doing that. So I think that's how I look at it. No, I think wonderful. I think a lot of people are learning from what you post on LinkedIn. I think it's also been an absolute treat to speak to you, Abhijit. I would say 
And I'm sure our listeners would have taken a lot many valuable insights from this conversation. So thank you for that. How can listeners reach out to you? Oh, that's very, very easy. I think uh, if you want to follow me on LinkedIn, it's uh, linkedin.com slash I-N slash Abhijit Bhaduri, A-B-H-I-J-I-T-B-H-A-D-U-R-I. And that spelling actually takes you everywhere. On Twitter, it's Abhijit Bhaduri. Instagram is Abhijit Bhaduri. If you uh, drop me a mail, uh, it's Abhijit Bhaduri at live, L-I-V-E dot com. So, you know, these are simple ways. If you subscribe to my newsletter, I'd be grateful. So it's there on LinkedIn. It's called Dreamers and Unicorns. It'll be lovely if you join me there. So wonderful. I think we will add all these details in the show notes as well so that people can reach out to you. It's been a pleasure, Abhijit. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Anisha. It's been such a privilege to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed the show. See you next time.